Howdy, everyone, and welcome to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma, the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we have another great episode for you guys today. Uh, Nick is back from his 10-day siesta. Did, did anything happen while you were gone, Nick? No. Yeah, Nick got engaged. <laughs> so please uh, send him your congratulations on the Twitter machine. You can see beautiful pictures of him proposing on the top of a mountain in Denali. You know, yes, that is the standard, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, specifically gentlemen, right? Yeah. Like that's the bar that I've set. Yeah. So if you want to get married, you have to do better if than If you'd that. like to mail a dead possum to Nick for setting that standard, <laughs> you're more than welcome to. <laughs> I'm going to give like a brief pause right here, Jared. Feel free to pull the picture up on the screen yeah. so that people can see it and they yeah. don't have to look me up on Twitter and see my bad tweets. Yeah. yeah. Um, Nick has many bad tweets. Uh, go follow him on Twitter at Nick S. Solheim and uh, me at S. Sharma US. But anyway, uh, congratulations, Nick. Um, really excited for, for you and Evie to spend the rest of your lives together. Are you excited, nervous? I'm probably more excited than she is about that prospect. <laughs> like, I, I can't imagine yeah, you, having to live with me. You married up, which is really the way that any man should by yeah. far. Yeah. I've engaged up at yeah, least. Yeah, we'll, we'll see if she'll, you know, yeah, go she, through with the she, wedding. She, but. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, DC <laughs> summer can, can turn people wild. But uh, we're now gearing up for all sorts of uh, exciting developments at American Moment. As we're taping this, uh, the Fellowship for American Statecraft Fellows are about to start here at the end of the week. Uh, actually, by the time this episode goes live on Monday, they would have uh, been here for orientation. And um, those were 10 fellows we selected out of uh, hundreds of applications that we got. Uh, we'll be going to partner organizations, everything from the offices of Senator Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio to uh, you know nonprofit organizations like the Center for Renewing America, the Center for Immigration Studies, American Principal Project, and more. Uh, we're really excited uh, to pilot this program, uh, paying these fellows well to have their first jobs in DC so that they can go on uh, to do incredible things working in the public policy space, uh, accumulating institutional expertise, uh, influence, and, and learning how to build power in politics so that we can implement this agenda that we all believe in, that our priorities talk about, and so on. And so I, I'm just extremely pumped to have them here soon. We're just creating little clones. <laughs> like we're just, every year, we're just going to do duplicate we're going to get multiply yeah. i guess is the right word you yeah. know we're just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger um man i'm really excited about fellowship we've got uh just fantastic curriculum uh if you missed your shot don't worry we're going to do it again next year um we will make sure to let you know when applications are live but make sure to uh follow us on twitter for for all the updates as to how fellowship is going uh at at am moment org um you can also check out our website and and uh you know am canon which is where we curate all the content we'll be teaching on this summer at americanmoment.org and if you uh believe in what we're doing and you know someone who wants to support it or you want to support it yourself you can also go to americanmoment.org slash donate uh, and contribute because i promise you uh the fellowship is not cheap but we're really excited to do it and we're really excited to have on our guest today, Dr. Kevin Roberts, the Chief Executive Officer of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Now, I know what you guys are going to say. Um, Texas Public Policy Foundation, that's that libertarian Texas think tank that I've heard so much about. Um, and Kevin would disagree, uh, in part because under his leadership over the last couple of years, it has become something, I think, fundamentally different. Um, I, 
I'll be entirely honest, cards on the table. I look up to Kevin a lot. Uh, his leadership at Wyoming Catholic College, where he uh, was the second president, and then over at Texas Public Policy Foundation, I think was transformative for both institutions. Uh, he's someone that I look up to a lot in terms of leadership. And while I don't think uh, institutionally, American women at TPPF agree on everything, uh, there's really not anyone that we agree on everything with. But I think that Kevin has really... Uh, you know, distinguish himself as an important leader in the conservative movement uh, and is uh, is someone that we're really excited to see continue to grow and to have more and more influence. Um, just to give the rest of his bio, um, uh, as a lifelong educator, uh, Kevin earned his PhD in American history from the University of Texas. And after that, he served as a history professor and then started his own K through 12 school uh, called John Paul the Great Academy in Louisiana. Uh, he then was hired to be president of Wyoming Catholic College, where uh, the New York Times described him as being full of cowboy Catholics, which uh, definitely is going in this episode title, uh, and for refusing federal student loans uh, and grants. Uh, both of the schools he led ended up being uh, pioneering in their space. And, uh, you know, he was at the center of a lot of what it meant to be, uh, uh, you know, to be a religious institution during the Obama years and to take a stand against a lot of the dictates that were coming down uh, in both K through 12 and in higher education. So he's got a fascinating story and, a, and an interesting windy path. Um, you know, in, in the private sector, you see uh, CEOs jump from sector to sector because leadership executive experience is in some ways a transferable quality even between sectors. I think Kevin's an example of someone who's, who's done the same, jumping from the education space to you know, education in a different form, but in the think tank space and, and has really shown because of it. You can certainly tell that Kevin is a lifelong educator. Um, he had a lot of great lessons, I think, to, to teach us today um, and things that I certainly hope you all will, will soak up as well about what it means to be uh, a leader in today's America, uh, in this American moment, uh, and uh, what it means to have moral and political courage. Uh, Kevin has a lot of great stuff to, to say about that today. I think it was a fantastic episode. And so without further ado, we'll go now to Kevin. Kevin, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You're flying in from Texas, which we always appreciate. Um, uh, and you're you're on a, a rapid schedule, but you took some time to come to the studio. So we really appreciate that. I believe that much of what you're doing. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, what we always love to do with our guests when they come on is to explain a little bit of how they got to the point where they are now. How did you get to the point where you were the chief executive officer of the Texas Public Policy Foundation? Well, thanks for the question. I'm an educator by training did my history degree at the University of Texas. And so short version of a very long story, which we all have, <laughs> is that I'd started my own K through 12 school, John Paul the Great Academy in Louisiana. And from there became president of Wyoming Catholic College. And during that time realized that my calling in life was no longer to be a historian or to be a, an education administrator, but to really go on the offense in, pol in politics and policy. And the job at the Texas Public Policy Foundation came up. I would say that that was the Holy Spirit tapping me on the shoulder, calling me into the fight. And now that I'm in it, I'm never leaving. That's fantastic. Um, tell me a little bit more about Wyoming Catholic College. That's not just a normal university. It uh, is is unique in all sorts of ways. Um, what's the story of that school? How did it get founded? Why did it get founded? Wyoming Catholic College is a school that any listener should look up, wyomingcatholic.edu. You don't have to be Catholic to be there, which means you don't have to be Catholic to be interested in it. For the same reason that 
every American ought to be a fan of Hillsdale College. So I got there as the second president. I'm a, a layman married with four kids succeeding the founding president who's a Catholic priest and a gentleman who remains a friend. And they were looking to be bold. Uh, the, the education itself is focused on the great books, on the traditions we all understand in our Judeo-Christian tradition. And it's paired with a typical kind of Wyoming culture, teaching horsemanship. Uh, during my tenure, we also added teaching the students how to fly fish. Every student became hunter safety certified and, 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 and went bird hunting with the, with the president, me. But the point was, we were also doing all that when the Obama administration was making it impossible for any institution of faith, particularly a Roman Catholic one, to live it out, in particular with the, the contraceptive mandate. So we were co-plaintiffs with Little Sisters of the Poor. I refused to sign the document that said that as a Catholic institution and a practicing Roman Catholic, that I would have to provide contraceptive services for our employees. There's room for disagreement on that among Americans. I'm just saying that if you're going to take that right away from a Catholic institution, imagine what right we're going to take away from others. So we had all kinds of attention nationally about that. I developed the, the reputation, which the New York Times uh, labeled me as, as the cowboy Catholic, because, <laughs> uh, you know, a polite way of putting it is we told the Obama administration to go pound sand. And that was so exciting. We said, now that we're fully accredited, we're going to refuse federal student loans and grants. <laughs> and that's really, to, to sum all of that up, Sarab, where I got the idea, I'm just going to stay on offense for the rest yeah. of my life. Well, there are worse names to be called by the New York Times, I yeah. think. I'm, uh, sure, I'm sure they've come up with worse things. I'm sure that probably privately they were calling me worse names, yeah. but I often get introduced that way and it makes me chuckle because uh, usually I'm in boots and a hat uh, rather than a, a suit and tie. And I think that really is the heart of America, certainly the heart of Texas and the heart of conservatism. So I want to back up a little bit. Uh, you're in the business of you know education and institution building. So are we. Um, <laughs> How did you get interested in that, uh, in, in education and, um, you know, providing a way for, for young people to learn? I grew up in South Louisiana in a family mostly of teachers and developed a love for history and second and third grade. And that's a, a passion that I have to this day, scanning your books here. You know, I want to pull off a couple and read them. I want to finish a biography I started about Teddy Roosevelt. And and in some way, I mean, you have to account for the fact I'm a teacher. I'm always giving unsolicited advice. <laughs> People, if they didn't enjoy history in high school, should as adults go back and discover that part of history that really tickles their fancy. And frankly, Nick, I just followed my passion. I thought I was going to go to law school and decided at the last minute not to go to law school and instead go get my graduate degree in history. Why? Because I had the, and I think even have, present tense, the heart of a teacher. I love helping people. I have taught every level of education from pre-K to graduate students, and I am a very blessed man as a result. Mm, that's incredible. Um, how do you think about you know, the purpose of, of education? I mean, there's classical notions of education that go back to antiquity. Uh, it's clear we're very, very far away from that right now. What's the best of what education could be? And, and how do you feel like it's it's not living up to that in modern American life? Boy, what an excellent question. I will go in the order you asked, although it's tempting to start with a critique. <laughs> education at its best cultivates in every student, regardless of where they're from, regardless of whatever perceived obstacles they have to learning well, part being part of what I call the great conversation. The conversation that learned people, people who are aspiring to be learned people have had for millennia throughout the entire world. 
both the Far East and especially the West. And it's in the West where we've cultivated that because we pair it with freedom. And so the best education is one that cultivates in each student a desire to be free, not freedom as is commonly defined, the freedom to do whatever the heck we want, but the freedom to do what we ought, which of course signifies not just a higher power and a higher order, but a higher obligation for each of us. And interestingly, it starts with, with, with reading and in that kind of education we're not looking to be technically trained in something, although that's good. We're not looking to do you know, some or take some class because of the amount of money that will result, although that can be okay. We're looking to be educated for the intrinsic worth that it brings us, which is truth, beauty, and goodness. And one of the reasons, to get to the second part of your question, that I find American civil society very strained, to say the least, is because our education system has been horrific for two generations. We have spent the most money in the history of the world on education for the worst possible product. And that product is the, the delivery mechanism, the substance, the content that we see mostly in public schools. I'm a public school graduate, believe firmly in, in the, the history and future of public education. But if we don't get back in public schools and in more schools to this premise, that the purpose of education is to be in dialogue with the great minds and thinkers of all societies and to understand that a higher power has wired us to be free and we access that understanding of that freedom through that education, we're not going to change society. Is, is universality part of the problem here? I mean, look, basic literacy, uh, arithmetic uh, ability, that, th those are things that any free citizen needs. Um, but you know, I, I think that you know, we've gone in, in two or three generations from the status quo, uh, the norm in culture being uh, you know, finishing high school mm. to yours less than if you don't have a bachelor's degree. And, and is, that, is that cultural pressure diluting what otherwise you know, should be, is something that's a fairly niche product, which is a classical liberal education? Yeah, there are a lot of elements to your question. You put your finger on if not the bullseye, sort of the outer ring of the bullseye, which is that we have put a tremendous amount of pressure now on two, maybe three generations of Americans that they must go to college when that shouldn't be what happens. And it isn't because people are dumb. It's because college is, especially now in the 21st century, a, a degree program or an educational program that not only has a very poor ROI, but more, far more importantly than that, it does not teach what needs to be taught, which is the eternal principles, the eternal truths. And I would argue, I'm sure there will be some listeners with whom I would share a worldview otherwise who will disagree with me when I say this, but I would argue that at every college, there ought to be a one or two year core program of core texts, that everyone from engineering students to history students takes. And then they can specialize in the subsequent two or three years. And I would argue some of the, the, the best colleges in this country are doing that. And because I'm an optimist, as you all know, I do believe we're going to turn the corner on this. But one of the ways we're going to turn the corner is to call out what is not working and to really celebrate what is. Yeah, this is this is so interesting. I'm, I'm thinking back to when I first applied to college uh, back in high school, and uh, I think there's a broader critique to be made of American society today that we've we've elevated uh, 
choice uh, to to an end in and of itself. And when uh, you know colleges have become this this consumer product almost, uh, they're all trying to differentiate themselves in a different way. And I remember uh, being very compelled at the time, as any kid would be, by uh, Brown University's offering that said, "We have no core curriculum. We're almost no none at all." And it's like, well, that's that's the cool thing right there. Imagine having to have some set of standards, some notion of classical education that every student would abide by. I mean, you know, the, the opposite of that, the, the unlimited choice is very appealing to a kid. Um, doesn't mean it's good for them. Um, yeah, that's right. And and you see that, I mean, I, I think the, the other side of that being that, you know, I think the, the lazy or, or maybe incomplete critique of higher education is that uh, well, it doesn't help you get a job, right? You know, you need you need to uh, you know the, you should get a STEM or engineering degree if you want to do that. But but it's 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 I think we've lumped into one category something that in I think if you were designing society from scratch, you'd have be two separate categories, which is a liberal education versus various technical trainings or professional trainings in the law or medicine or in or engineering or what have you. Um, how do you think about that 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 messiness and that 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 conflict? It, well, it is messy. You 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 really put your your finger on some other aspects of that of that bullseye circle, if you will. One of them is that we create a false dichotomy between liberal education. What I mean by that is classical education, learning to be free, and the professional technical education. In fact, I have many close friends who. Or engineers, business types, especially living in Austin, where there's a, a huge biomedical venture capital world, and friends with a lot of those guys, and and they really challenge me on how endeared, endearing I find classical education. The point is, you ought to have both. There ought to be a period in your life when every person gets a grounding in the great books, classical education. And then a period in your life where you become sufficiently trained in your professional field, which leads to excellence. These are both goods. And, and thinking also to move on to the second point about what you said about Brown and not having any, any core program, that's part of the problem, that we no longer have universities. You know, it, it shouldn't be called Brown University. It should be called Brown Multiversity. Yeah where everyone that leads us to you know, ridiculous comments yeah. like the, the senator from New Jersey, you know, saying, tell me about your truth and your truth and my truth. There aren't multiple truths. There's one truth with a, with a capital T. And one of the reasons that American society is fraying is because we have formed, I want to not use the verb train, we have formed, malformed a couple of generations of college students and we're really paying the price right now. How do you think about um, the uh, uh, what, what I think another uh, alternative name you could give to universities, which is basically glorified hedge funds? How do you think about the, <laughs> I hadn't thought uh, about the hedge, hedge funds with a, a woke indoctrination camp attached to them? Um, you know, uh, you're, you're a little bit older than us. You've probably seen the nature. You think of so? America. Yeah. <laughs> you Some didn't have saying, to call them out like yeah. that. <laughs> Some are saying, I mean, I, we've- The only, man flew all the way from Texas. Come on. <laughs> we've only ever seen this status quo, but, mm -hmm. but presumably, I mean, you've seen the kind of inflation of, of perks and, and accessories and, and other things on campus that, uh, you know, I think probably to the detriment of, of, of proper, you know, almost Spartan education. And yeah. how, how do you think about all of those other elements, you know, the combination of sports and, you know, all of the luxurious amenities and all that, that how do you think they dilute or maybe pervert the higher education system? There are excellent examples, unfortunately, of America at its worst, uh, which is hyper-materialist, hyper-superficial, 
not worried about at all, really, even hostile to the, the, the eternal principles and also the disagreements that we can have civilly when we all are reading those texts and all having those conversations. And, you know, to your to your ageist comment earlier, <laughs> the from the time that I was an undergraduate, which was about 30 years ago to now, that evolution has happened. And I went to a big state university in Louisiana as an undergraduate, and there weren't any of those perks. And there, there was basically more than a modicum of a core program that every student at that university had to take. I presume that that has changed. I, I haven't checked. Certainly national trends would indicate that it has. And just think about this for a minute. Just hang on this point. That has changed the dilution of, of a core program with the expanse of things that really don't matter like really nice gyms and, and you know, all of these quote unquote services, some of which are a real affront to what we believe as, as conservatives. Those two trends, this is the point, are connected. And so if we believe that one of them is the problem, then we also have to recognize the other is as well. Wyoming Catholic College stood as a, as a contrast to a lot of this. Um, That's why I'm smirking is we certainly didn't have these <laughs> uh, pyramids of facilities yeah. in Lander, Wyoming. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and it's it seems like a fantastic place I hope to visit at some point. But, uh, you know, talk talk us through, you, you mentioned one of the fights, which is the contraception fight, but um, the accreditation fight. Um, yeah. I think that that uh, is is really a watershed moment. I think it's a choice that a lot of co a couple of colleges went through. You know, Hillsdale went through a similar mm -hmm. decision. College of the Ozarks, I believe, and mm -hmm. a couple others. Um, why did Wyoming Catholic College decide to reject accreditation? What were the consequences, and and what were the ultimate benefits? Well, we decided to reject the federal student loans and grants because we were concerned that the administration at that time would implement policies that we would not be able to abide as a faithful Catholic institution. And these would be policies, by the way, that institutions of other faiths would also have problems with. And so it's not exclusively a Catholic problem, although profoundly for Wyoming Catholic College, because the founding of that organization was also, or of that college, was also a reaction in a good sense to the few hundred Catholic colleges that should just take Catholic out of their name. And, and that's, that's a relevant problem for people who aren't Catholic, too, because some of these are just huge, stalwart institutions of American life, like Notre Dame. I'm no longer bashful about calling, calling people out. So Wyoming that's Catholic, just water in that cup. You're doing this yourself. Yeah, that's exactly right. I told you, well, you know, no, no beer or hard liquor before the show. Uh, it's just water speaking. Uh, the point is that we wanted to take a stand that we thought that the the tradition that we were in dialogue with going back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, the tradition of our particular church, the tradition of America and Wyoming was filled, were filled with examples of people who said to heck with it. We're not going to participate in that. And I remember going to meetings with 20 or 25 other presidents of Catholic colleges, all good men and good women, with some Catholic bishops. And, you know, this was a little imprudent and intemperate on my part. I was also just drinking water for the record. And I stood up and said, where's the courage? Where are the St. Thomas Moores of our time? Where are the St. John Fishers of our time? Where's the Cardinal Newman of our time? And we need more of them in education and in politics and in K through 12 and policy work, which is why I'm so excited to be with you. So you said that wasn't very kind of you, but, but that's leadership. Like stepping up and calling something out and saying, hey, you know, I respect you as men and women, but this is cowardly. 
Um, I said something to that effect. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's that's fantastic. I I believe that's leadership. Um, and you seem to, you know, lead your institutions in a different way, in a way that's countercultural. Um, you know, both the schools under your leadership have, uh, you know, received awards uh, for being, you know, some of the top schools uh, in the country. And so uh, I just want to ask, uh, how did your leadership philosophy uh, develop and and what influenced that? Who were you influenced by? Mm-hmm. This question was in part inspired by the fact that you handed me a book on leadership when I visited you last. And I haven't had a chance to read yet, but presumably you have many thoughts on it. So. Yeah, I do. Gosh, <laughs> you might have to cut me off on, on this response, Nick. Uh, and I'm going to pair that excellent question with a, a part of Sarab's previous question I didn't respond to about the consequences, mm. because the consequences of that decision at Wyoming Catholic College were immense. They were immense for the entire community. They were immense for the faculty and staff who could not see salary increases because we were leaving 20% of our budget on the table. Mm. In other words, in a $5 million annual budget, we were saying we're not going to take that million dollars. I don't say this to complain or hold myself out to be special. It was immense for me and my young family because I had to travel more from little Lander, Wyoming to go raise that Delta. And yet it was worth it. And it was especially worth it when the accrediting agency came to us and said, you know, you need to rethink that decision. In other words, they were stepping outside their bounds of authority. And I said, you need to rethink what you're doing. Is one of the reasons I took the job at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is to try to break the accreditation cartel. (laughs) Haven't succeeded in doing that, but had we gotten a second Trump term, I bet we would have. But to come back to the heart of your question, those consequences, which in the moment are very difficult, extremely trying, are also where leaders learn to lead even better. And so that made me I guess no less bold. Uh, I would say as a leader, sometimes you have to be careful about being too bold by that there are, there's a time for battles and there's a time to say, let's not pick that battle right now. But the I will say even before I got to Wyoming, the big challenge we had at the school in Louisiana, which has been well-documented, is keeping it afloat financially. Doing faithful education whether it's Catholic or another denomination, or for that matter, just a you know, really good classical school that's non-sectarian, is extremely difficult financially. And so we were constantly raising for payroll, almost had to close the school a couple of times. And the point is, to sum up here, that I became a better leader when I just went to the constituents, to the parents and the students and the supporters of both schools and said, look, this is hard and we're not going to make it unless we all come together and figure out how we're going to execute this plan. That is the hardest thing, at least for me to do as a leader, is to be transparent about a vulnerability of the mission. And every business guru would say, don't do that. Yeah. I disagree. Yeah. No, that's that's fantastic. And I think that that is, uh, that is true courage to be able to, you know, admit uh, you know, weakness and maybe falling short of goals and, and asking people to come alongside you. Uh, I went to a uh, Protestant Christian university in Minnesota um, uh, called the University of Northwestern St. Paul. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was a very conservative school while I was there. There was a chapel requirement. There were uh, very strict visitation hours. Uh, You had to sign a statement of faith to be there. Um, And there was also a year of Bible courses before you could before you could start. you know, getting into some of the some of the uh, specialized classes. Um, one of the things that I've seen since is, even though this still purports to be a conservative school, uh, 
I'm seeing posts now from people I still know at Northwestern uh, that critical race theory books are being assigned to students and being taught um, hand in hand with this chapel requirement. CRT is being taught at chapel with scripture. Uh, how do you prevent when you're when you're running a moral and, and, and Christian enterprise? How do you prevent that moral or amoral slide into into things that aren't uh, scripturally true. Man, it's painful to listen to that. I'm sure we'll talk about critical race theory a little bit more, or at least I would like to. But the, to answer your question directly, when you're the leader of a school or a college and you're faced with that kind of thing seeping in, and it's, it's, a, it's a threat that would undermine the very reason for the school's existence, the, what I learned is the best, <clears throat> excuse me, the best way to lead through that is to sort of adopt your your experience as a classroom teacher with your faculty, with your staff. By that, I mean to listen, because it's very easy to lead and just sort of say, we're charging the hill and we're taking it and follow me, but you got to be sure people are following you. And so what happens is we get a lot of short tenured college presidents who are well-meaning and well-intentioned and very courageous, but they don't take the time to develop the relationships of trust with the faculty who are largely like-minded, students for that matter, staff. I, we didn't have that kind of threat, thank goodness, at Wyoming Catholic College. But when we were going through the student loan and grant thing, that was not a, a, a universal, universally held position inside the college. And I gave people the freedom to have that, d differing opinions. And so what I did was student town halls. I attended every faculty meeting. And what happened was when we made the decision and the board made the decision after a year of debate, I mean, real debate, to honor, in fact, the intellectual tradition we purported to honor, everyone put their hand on that touchstone and said, we're following him. And so it's a long-winded way of saying that the leader of that university, the leader of other schools, they ha have to lean inside their organization in order to make sure that they can get over that hump. Sometimes you got to declare war internally, and we need more administrators willing to do that than we currently have. Mm -hmm both at the K through 12 school you help lead and at Wyoming Catholic, it seems like uh, the common theme was this, uh, this battalion uh, at uh, being attacked from all around. Uh, how do you think about what seems to be the status quo in American life that if you are uh, of faith, if you have small c conservative beliefs, if you are just in any way a dissident to the kind of liberal managerial order that's around us, um, that it's a constant battle. Um, and does it have to be that way? Yeah, it does. And the reason is because it's good. That path of being a dissident to that order is good and it's true and it's beautiful. And those paths are always the most narrow. I see that in a spiritual sense. Hopefully, we'll experience the grace to see that for the rest of my life. But the point is that in this hyper-fractured American society, that's going to be the situation for the rest of our lives. And as I see it, we have three choices to make. We can say, man, that stinks, and I'm going to have nothing to do with it and go sit in the corner, which a lot of conservatives do. We can say, you know, I'm just going to kind of go along to get along and kind of keep my beliefs to myself. And we might call that apathy as well. Or we can challenge it and be prudent about 
where and how and to what extent we challenge it, but to be willing multiple times a year to say, I'm having no part of that. And I happen to believe that there are so many people doing that now that we're going to save this republic. We're going to, we're going to save this society. But the next several years are going to be really ugly. And I'm just not to sort of put a, a religious conclusion on this, if y'all don't mind. I'm not in a position where I'm comfortable presuming God's will about how this is going to end up. So I'm not going to go put my nose in the corner. I'm not going to keep my beliefs to myself. I'm going to go fight like this wonderful republic demands. And also what I think scripture tells us we have to do to save something that's good. How do we get to the point where where this is the status quo, where we're surrounded mm. on all sides? I mean, I, I don't think it was necessarily the case that, say, 60 years ago in American society that ordinary, decent, everyday religious people uh, were treated this way by, right. by their government, by their culture, by the society around them. How did that decline happen? Where did maybe some of us go wrong? There are a lot of factors that go into that. So I could go all historian on you, which I won't do in the interest of time. But this began to change substantially about a century ago with John Dewey and William James and a lot of newfangled philosophers in the late 18 and early 1900s who began to see human persons as not having dignity in the way the three of us understand it, but human beings as being cogs in a machine. And while Dewey and James certainly were not Marxists, I'm not making that claim, that gets pretty close to the underlying philosophical fallacy of Marxism, which isn't even about, isn't even that the government's controlling the, the, the major um, resources of the economy. It's that it's seeing the human person as a material being making decisions based on materialism. That led us to, in the 1950s and 60s, deciding that families should be smaller. There are a number of critiques or critics across the, the Christian spectrum, Christian leaders, who starting in the 50s and 60s warned us that by the 21st century, we would see some serious repercussions of birth rates declining, of families crumbling. And unfortunately, that's what we're living through in the 21st century. Good politics and good policy can help that. But ultimately, what I just described is something far upstream from politics and policy, which is why I'm so glad that y'all at the American moment are, are really engaging that issue, because that's something that's going to take a century to correct because it took a century to undo. Yeah. There's a really interesting, specifically on like the families thing, there's a there's a very interesting kind of gap between the the generations. Uh, everyone in in my family has gotten married relatively young, like you know, in their early twenties. Uh, I just got engaged about a week ago. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. It's awesome. Thank you. Uh, Marriage is a wonderful thing. Yeah, it's I'm really excited. We're get we're getting married in September, so not a not a super long uh, engagement by any means, but I have to say that kind of the first words after congratulations are, "Wow, you're you're so young." Yeah. Are you are you sure you want to do that? So you're 24. You yeah. know, is that is that really what you want to do with your life right now? And it's very interesting looking back at my family. Who my parents got married when my mom was 19. My dad was 20. Um, mm -hmm. uh, my great grandmother, I think, first got married at 16. Um, you know, I knew her most of my life. Uh, it's just very interesting how quickly things have changed. Yeah. Um, I, I, I just don't think, I don't really have any 
question about this. It's just well, I want to I, comment on your comment. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> and just say congratulations. You know, I I remember hearing the same thing uh, almost 24 years ago. I've now been married more than half my life. I'm mm. almost 47 and celebrating 24 years of marriage this August. So I was 23, and people say, even people I love say gosh, you're kind of young. And I'm thinking, not really. I just met the woman of my dreams who still is. Yeah. And I think she's happy we're married that long. <laughs> you have to ask her sometime. But the, the point is taking that from your wonderful story and my wonderful experience because of my wife and bringing that up to a, a societal level, what we're doing is, or what we have done is misprioritize what we ought to be doing. And, you know, with good reason, to some extent, people want to have their jobs and they want to be financially secure. But in fact, we know from tons of research, especially from my very good friend, Mark Regneris at the University of Texas, from Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia, mm. that we need to get married first. And so for anyone out there listening, you know, if you've been dating this guy or gal and they seem kind of special, they probably are. And the good jobs and the financial security and everything that comes in life will happen. And yes, you might eat some ramen noodle soup. You might have rice and beans nights. But it makes those times when you sit down for a steak when you're my age really, really sweet. To say nothing of the greatest fruit of marriage, which is children and a lot of them. Mm. Yeah, it's... I'm really excited about it. I would also, you know, echo your encouragement to all of our listeners. Uh, Evie and I have been together for for 11 months, you know, and, and during COVID time, it's certainly actually Sarab was the one who pushed me to 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 ask her out. So hey, I guess good job. Sarab. Uh, that's it's it's his fault. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, no, it, it was certainly a sufficient time. I mean, when when you know that there's faith alignment, you know, we're both Southern Baptists, uh, you know, when you know there's values alignments and, and it's really you, important. Yeah. And you and you want the you want the same things, you know, you want a, a, a young family. Uh, Y'all are going to change the world. <laughs> I mean, really, every think about that, and you're a special guy, so you're really going to change the world. Your 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 fiance must be particularly special. But my point is, every married couple, every faithful married couple. I'm not just talking about avoiding infidelity. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about faithful to what God wants us to be as a family unit. Changes the world, especially if they have kids. But for whatever reason, if people don't, they can change the world as well. Because we're leaning into civil society, we're building institutions that are far more important than any government. Yeah, And we're going to have to rely more and more on government if we don't get married at a higher rate. Yeah, and here's the thing that drives me nuts about the, well, you should wait to get married until you get a job and you're financially stable is, it's not happening. You know, we, <laughs> we, we were promised if this, oh, you know, when this GDP line goes up, like it's all, it's all gonna be good and you're right. gonna be able to get a job and then you'll be able to get married. But people in their 30s still living, you know, downtown paying $2,500 a month for an apartment. They don't own anything. You know, a majority of Americans don't have a month's worth of expenses uh, in their savings account. It's it's just bonkers to me. Like, why wouldn't you, you know, appreciate uh, some of the greatest fruits that were given when you're young and have the most opportunity to enjoy them? May, yeah. as, may as well get married poor and young and, you know, at least enjoy it together. <laughs> you know, it seems yeah. like it's uh, I, I will say, you know, as as a semi poor person, it is a lot more fun with another person. Yeah. My guys, <laughs> I will say that I'll vouch for that just to underscore that. Sorry for the interjection to Rob that when Michelle, my wife and I got married, I started graduate school two days later. <laughs> this wasn't business graduate Honeymoon, school, right? law school. This was graduate school in history. So we were poor for a long time. 
in, in materially, but we have always been very rich in sharing experiences together. And I just can't say enough. I know a lot of longtime married guys and gals who would echo this. I just can't say enough that there's no word in the in the English language to describe how awesome that is. Mm. And I just want to encourage people who are listening, encourage the two of you, the people you work with, go get married. One of the institutions uh, that uh, I think uh, you've been uh, instrumental in leading over the last couple of years has been the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Um, walk us through how the decision uh, was made to, to, to go over there, uh, how you were, were thinking about it. You had been in Texas before. You, mm-hmm. know, you got your PhD at the University of Texas at Austin. What appealed to you about Texas and, and, and why did you end up rising to the, the role at the head of it? Well, when we left Texas in 2003 to take a, a tenure track job at a state university in New Mexico, we got to Las Cruces, which was, it was and is a special place to us. Our son was born there. And almost from the moment I arrived there, I wanted to get back to Texas. So while I'm not a native Texan, I'm an adopted Texan. And we spent the next 13 years figuring out how to get there. And so the the handful of years we were in Wyoming, we thought we would stay there. We continue to have ties to Texas. But the, the issue was that I realized at this tiny school in Wyoming, even though we were doing great good and the school continues to do great good, that I was feeling called by the Holy Spirit to go do something even harder. And that was to take the experience I had had in the classroom leading these two institutions and, <clears throat> and get into the policy world. And so this job came up at the Texas Public Policy Foundation to be the executive vice president. I remember being interviewed by our wonderful longtime CEO, Brooke Rollins, who later went on to serve in the, in the Trump administration. She said, why in the world would you leave being a college president to come be number two at, at the Texas Public Policy Foundation? I said, because y'all win. And you want to keep Texas, Texas. And if you'll have me, I'll, I'll take the job today. And that's exactly what happened. And I started a week later and uh, left the college in great shape. And since that time have become CEO because Brooke's gone on to do some wonderful things. And the, the point of all this, Rob, to sum up is that the work we do at the Texas Public Policy Foundation isn't merely about the policies we work on from securing the border to proper taxation and education policies in Texas. It's something even larger than that. And that is we do have to keep Texas, Texas, because it is the state, maybe along with Florida, that's going to dictate the American future. That doesn't mean if someone's listening in New Hampshire or Alaska or Louisiana, that those places are unimportant. Every state is. It's just that Texas in particular has a long history of telling the federal government to go jump. (laughs) And we've got a real, not just opportunity, but I would argue obligation over the next decade to do that. And it is just a privilege every single day to lead that organization, which is the largest policy group outside D.C., because we actually make a difference. Now, to to be entirely candid, I think that uh, TBPF has changed in some ways under your leadership. And I think for the better, I think it's been more, uh, it's become more uh, useful to the moment we find ourselves in. Um, how do you think about some of the ways that TPPF has maybe uh, course corrected, adjusted its approach to contemporary issues uh, over the time that you've been there? Yeah, great question. It was a, a wonderful organization when I got there, especially because of Brooke's leadership, her ability to find talented people. And so this was an organization that just needed some tweaking. But kind of going back to 
a comment or an exchange I had with Nick earlier about leadership, I just learned to listen first. And as I, I listen to people inside the organization, to legislators in Texas, to congressmen, to donors, I realized while we were good, we weren't great. And I'm a huge fan of Jim Collins' book, From Good to Great, and especially the little addendum, it's just about 35 pages, called Good to Great for the Social Sectors, in other words, for, for nonprofits. And I just started asking the question, including with Brooke, you know, wh what are we going to do over the next year to be truly great? And for, that, for us, that means getting good legislation passed in Texas, killing bad legislation, and then having a presence here in D.C., not to be part of the D.C. Conservatism, Inc., but to really take the message of states and federalism to the swamp. And that's what we've been able to do for this reason. We were really enamored with some more libertarian vocabulary, the altar of the free market, as I like to say. I love the free market, but freedom came before free market. And so we need to remember that. And freedom in the sense that it's what we ought to do, which confers an obligation to one another. And we're as a result of the, the last two or three years at, at uh, the foundation, where inside we've had conversations about this, we are now referred to by the Texas and national media as a conservative think tank. It's the greatest achievement I've had at the Texas Public Policy Foundation is opening up the Austin American statesman, and we're no longer called a libertarian free market think tank. Nothing wrong with I mean, entirely with libertarianism or the free market. Some, some I assume are good people, <laughs> as our president would say. Yeah, that's that, that's right. And inside our organization, <clears throat> there can be people who are libertarian minded. But the point is, it's not a libertarian free market think tank. It's a conservative think tank because of how we started this conversation, which is that we're far more concerned about cultivating eternal principles and a healthy civil society than we are about anything else. Mm -hmm. Even within... Uh the label conservative, um, I think in part because there was such a kind of attenuated border between the question of what's libertarian and what's conservative for so long. I think that there's interesting conversations happening at, at the national level uh, and, and even at the state level um, about what the distinction between those two might be. Uh, and then even further within conservatism, where uh, our priorities should lie, what our approach should be. Um, how do you place yourself within some of these um, internecine conflicts? I mean, look, I, I think the first thing you'll say, and I'll, I'll say it for you, is that you're a bridge builder and, and you're interested in, mm -hmm. in crafting uh, something that's that's more big tent. But I think that one could uh, assume correctly based on your <laughs> background, um, based on some of the priors that you clearly have with your previous experience, that they have a particular approach to these uh, debates. Um, how, do you, how do you think about the future of conservatism? Well, that's, that's really the question for me every day in my job. So I appreciate that you asked it. I've, I've said, in fact, I think several years ago, I spoke at CPAC and, and, uh, on conservatism. And I said, I'm the kind of conservative who doesn't believe in an adjective being in front of it. I, I am a huge student, uh, as you know, of Edmund Burke and of Russell Kirk. That's the, you know, if they're, I belong to a tribe in conservatism, which I'd kind of reject anyway, as they would. Uh, it would be a Burkean, Kirkian sense of, of the term. But the, what that means in 21st century American politics is that we're building a movement, y'all are building a movement, that resembles very much the approach that Ronald Reagan took. And not just in the 1980s, but in the late 1960s, the 1970s. And I would, I would commend to any listener so inclined to read the texts of those radio clips that, that he did throughout the 1970s. There's a great book about that now. That's how my grandmother 
uh, who was a Democrat in Louisiana, became a registered Republican, was listening to those. And it's very relevant 45, 50 years later, because those same pressures existed in the conservative movement. Those are very natural. It's actually very good for us to have more libertarian types some Randians who, you know, they're at third base. They hit a triple. We want them to hit a home run. It's our job. I am a bridge builder, but just sort of by, by nature and also by desire to build a movement that allows us to have differing opinions on certain issues and not believe the world is coming to an end or a particular organization is coming to an end because we don't have the strong consensus on one issue. I do believe, however, that there are some key issues that we all must agree on. And the left is very good about driving wedges into our movement to, to cause that, that discord. What are some of those key issues that you think, um, you know, 90% uh, <clears throat> agreement needs to happen on? People would gravitate conservatives in answering your question to things like immigration and healthcare and education, but there's really one, and it has to do with the human person. And we're living in a time where it is literally true that even in Texas, because of the failure of our legislature this session to address the issue, and that comes from a lack of political courage, where boys can play in girl sports. That's one aspect of a long-running agenda by the left, which keep in mind, I've been fighting for 25 years. I know how they operate to redefine the human person. For me, there ought not be 0.01% disagreement about that as conservatives. And if there were a litmus test, that would be one of them. I'm a faithful Christian guy. Abortion, marriage are in that same category. Having said that, I do believe that we ought not shun out of our movement people who have legitimate questions about those positions. We ought to have a conversation. And frankly, that's where our faith comes in. We, we ought to really adhere to the gospel commission, which is to go out and evangelize the world, including inside our own movement. When it comes to Texas specifically, I, I, I want to ask about national questions and I want to ask about Texas questions. But what do you see as sort of the uh, civilizational threats to Texas right now? You know, you, you mentioned earlier we need to keep Texas, Texas. But what does that mean tangibly? It's not, I think, that the temptation, I mean, much like, uh, you know, I, I have the same critique of, of some of the kind of broader societal conceptions of masculinity. People think masculinity is beer and steaks. It's not. Yeah. It's about force of will <laughs> and right. leadership. Well much the same way, as, as much as I love my cowboy boots, I have several pairs uh, and I want to buy a hat. That's not what Texas is either. What, right. what is what is the, the telos of, of Texas and what are the threats to it in your view? Yeah, the telos of Texas is is individual will tied to implicit understandings of, of obligations to others. And in, in other words, you didn't hear me say, you know, some fighting independent spirit, although it manifests itself that way. If you, as a historian, I continue to read a lot about the history of Texas, different episodes. We're, for example, at, at our organization doing this 10 episode history of Texas, highlighting the telos of Texas. And at the heart of it is an understanding that each of us really is responsible for ourselves. Read, not government but not at the expense of the obligations we have to build a healthy civil society, a large part of which is transmitting those values from generation to generation. And that brings me to say the greatest threat to that telos is not Californians coming in. 60% of them are conservative. Texas is conservative. It always has been. The greatest threat is an education system which not only fails to transmit those values from generation to generation, they're openly hostile to it. And we have a Texas legislature, which for all of the other wonderful work they've done this session 
on abortion, on, for that matter, immigration, healthcare, has failed to address that problem. It's not going to be Californians or New Yorkers or folks from Chicago who undermine Texas. It's going to be a lack of political courage by the men and women in power mm -hmm. to do so. I forget who has this, this quote, but I think there's a line, something along the lines of, you know, every peoples and every civilization across time is uh, invaded uh, by a set of barbarians. We call them children. <laughs> and, it's true in my house. <laughs> if, uh, and you've got four of them, so you're, you're outnumbered. Um, it, yeah, I mean, this seems to me uh, obvious. And, and the polling coming out of both 2016, 2018, and 2020 uh, was very clear on this, is that we like to think, we would hope that the problem is, is that you know, if only we could basically build a wall around Texas to keep the Californians out, things would be fine. But no people... Um, you know, I think a lot of people are, are opting into Texas for the sake of being Texas. I think there is a set of people that opt into it because of a ludicrous sort of solicitous regime of corporate welfare where we take a money bag around the country and say, please, please, please move your entire corporate headquarters here. We're going to bring 50,000 woke employees with us. It's very silly. I think it contrasts uh, pretty robustly with the approach that, let's say, someone like Ron DeSantis of Florida takes, which is he kind of sits back, he folds his arms, and he says, yeah, we're pretty great. If you'd like to move here, you're more than welcome to. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you would think in Texas we would do that. Yeah. Those companies are moving to Texas regardless, right? Right. And so at the very least, we shouldn't drain the public coffers, differentially tax citizens compared to corporations, and 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 really invite um, you know uh, agents of social change that that are deleterious to the state. Um, but, but you look at the polling. Uh, uh, immigrants to Texas, if we want to use that term, uh, vote at, you know, conservatively uh, at higher rates than, than native Texans. That's right. That's really troubling. Yeah. Um, and that's a recipe for disaster. It, it, it is. And so until I knew that, and I did not know that until 2018 because of some research my good friend and colleague Chuck DeVore did, I used to make this joke as I'd go around Texas speaking to some groups. We need, to, we need to build a wall in Texas, not just on the southern border, but on the western border and keep the Californians out. But in fact, we need them. And because they're coming in a, a disproportionately conservative. And so if we're going to build a wall in Texas, it would be around the schools of education and most of the school boards, especially in the big cities, who really are woke. Mm. They, they, they are fighting us right now, literally right now on our bill that would disallow the teaching of critical race theory in the 1619 project. These are native Texans. You know, some people who get up in legislative hearings and say, I'm a seventh generation Texas. I know the values of Texas. No, maybe one day you did, but you no longer do. And we really, it just, it comes back to the, the, I guess one of the themes of this conversation, Sarab, it is one of the gravest problems facing America. This is the good news, is a problem we've always had which is a lack of political courage. And I'm just hopeful in the work that we do at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, the work that y'all have embarked on, that we're going to address that issue. Um, I want to push you on uh, no, I'm not what I see. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to push you on, on what I see may be a tension uh, between something I know TPPF is very active on, something you believe in, and the problem you just laid out with the education system, which is school choice. Mm -hmm. um, I'm generally a supporter of school choice, but um, at sort of a meta-political level, I can't help but wonder if um, a political dynamic where uh, conservatives, reformers, traditionalists directed all of their political energy towards creating a regime of school choice over the last 20 years left wide open a field for capture in the public schools such that things like critical race theory would become dominant, that, that the process of exit and, and taking, in some ways, who would be the loudest voices for reform or for keeping schools great. 
out of that system may have consigned the vast majority of people who do go to public schools to the regime we find ourselves in. You what can, do you say to that? I would say that you should keep pushing because you're 100% correct. And this is something I would not have apprehended as clearly as I do today, say three years ago, because we're all in at, at our foundation on school choice. And what we realized in the last 18 months, and some of my smarter colleagues, folks smarter than, than me, realized is exactly what you just described. And so our approach this session has been, let's, let's make sure we're paying attention to curriculum issues. I just want to underscore a constructive criticism of the organization I lead. And if buck stops on my desk, so if there's any blame, it, it comes back <laughs> yeah. to Kevin. Um, and that is that we left that field alone. We just left it on purpose, the, the field of curriculum, the field of school board matters, the field of the State Board of Education, so that we could invest literally every dollar we had for education reform on school choice. And to use a football metaphor, because, you know, I'm from Texas. In 2017, we got on the five-yard line for an education savings account program, and we failed to push the ball in. And what's happened since then is not only do we get farther and farther away from having real school choice in Texas, because we went 15 years without investing in relationships in the, the part of the field you described, we're playing serious defense. I mean, critical race theory is already in Texas schools. This bill that will get passed and signed by the governor will address it. It's going to be a great bill. But the point is, some of the damage has already been done. And so to sum up, I would say we're just politically trying to get votes in the Texas House for school choice. Those legislators are telling us, where have you been? And well, they're not wrong. Well, and I think, too, that some of the some of the blame here lies with, um, you know, Christians not being willing. You know, you're talking about political mm -hmm. courage. Let's talk about moral courage to <laughs> to confront this sort of thing. I mean, with your neighbors with the the parents uh of the of the kids that your kids go to school with right um i know a lot of people who you know instead of running for school board or or, or even confronting the school board about what's being taught in schools would rather just say oh you know well i want to i want to keep my friends that that right. you know i i go and play trivia with so i would just rather pull my kid out of school and go do something else um i think this sort of thing needs needs to be confronted. And so if you're not a state legislator uh, or you don't want to run, you know, for, mm -hmm. for school board, what should you be doing to combat this kind of uh, idea ideology? Well, wake up every morning and pray for the moral courage, as you say, Nick, to have those conversations. Number two, recognize that those conversations are rarely as negative and confrontational as we might seem. Most human beings are not wired to like conflict. Some of us mind it less than others, but the point is you're, you're acting out of charity. So if someone's inspired by your question, presuming they've got this, this sense of Christian virtues, it, it's charitable to ask your neighbor, your friend, your family member, why they're making that claim. And when we lead with the question, we disarm the confrontation that's about to ensue. But number three is, just to sum up, go to school board meetings. It's really simple. Go to school board meetings and ask questions. So if you're the kind of person who says, I'll never be armed with enough data to go challenge them, you don't have to. Go ask questions and trust your common sense. If our public school system needs anything more than anything else, it's more common sense. Mm. 
you're a big advocate for Texas being able to govern in the domains where Texas deserves to. States trust the TPPF branch in DC uh, very much, you know, does the same. Talking about federalism more broadly, but but federalism is not a uh, it's not a worldview that says everything should be up to the states. Sure. There are issues that are squarely within the purview of the federal government. Um, what are some of the ones that you see as as civilizational issues where the federal government is dropping the ball, or maybe conservatives have dropped the ball over the last mm-hmm. ten to fifteen years, uh, and that really need to be addressed as soon as you know conservatives have political power again? Well, I love that question. The first and exclusive obligation of government is to protect our rights. And the manifestations of that at the federal level are most profoundly felt in areas of national security, in areas of immigration. And conservatives in power in the nation's capital, for the most part, have been god-awful about both of those. We went about 15, 20 years ago, nation-building. Part of the the nation-building advocates in the Trump administration became part of the deep state which undid the president, that's abhorrent, it's treasonous. And yet I'm grateful that because of the depth of their treason and the just laying bare their agenda, that we're now able to have a conversation as conservatives about national security that growing up or, you know, when I was in my 20s, I never thought we would be able to have. You lived during the Iraq war. Exactly. And I was supportive of it because I was duped by a president I trusted and a secretary of state I admired. And I was wrong, dead wrong, 100% wrong. And the second thing is on immigration. You know, in Texas, two things I'd say about immigration, the border crisis is worse than what you think it is. I've been down there multiple times not as a politician, as a think tank guy trying to take stock myself. But the second thing I would say is, and just excuse a little bit of the Texas bravado, we do know how to make immigration work. We're very pro-immigrant. And the reason we do is because our civil society in Texas for hundreds of years has been extremely diverse in the best sense of that term. And the federal government, both by liberals and conservatives, has failed to implement its most serious obligation which is not just to secure a border, but to develop a transparent and fair immigration system where people who want to come here with good motivation can. There are other issues, but I think if we focus on those as conservatives, we will be really well off, not just because the polls are with us, that's just a manifestation of saying what's right, but because people know, the majority of Americans understand at just their core that that's what the government needs to be doing. And where have the conservatives been? when it comes to articulating those common sense points. I, I, I think this is another issue where you can perhaps give us um, some some guidance, given that you're a bit older than us. Um, so sorry for uh, yeah. calling you old twice now on the podcast. Not, <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, it beats the alternative. Yeah. Um, I, what, what was it like? Um, what we keep hearing, you know, we're, we're sort of on the leading edge of what we think the future of the right should look like, mm-hmm. you know, very honest about that. Um, and, and we find ourselves often contra a lot of the people who are leading the conservative movement, the Republican Party during uh, the, the presidency of George W. Bush. Um, and, and, and one thing I always like to say, especially to young, enthusiastic uh, kids who, who indict those who came before, is that, I mean, I've, I've heard from people who have quite a bit of courage that... Uh, Chances are, even if you were the boldest conservative, if you lived at the time when the Iraq war was being declared, you probably would have been for it too. That's right. 
Um, in some cases, that is a product of uh, just the the information um, mm-hmm. uh, deficit that we had about the reality of the situation. In some cases, that's because it was there was overwhelming social pressure mm-hmm. to go along with that. Um, how do you feel about uh, how uh, ecumenical the conservative movement uh, was then and is now? Do you think things have opened up? Uh, do you think that there's room for debate where there once wasn't, or, or is that not the case? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer that directly in a moment, but just observe that for those of us who came of age politically during the Reagan years, so you know, in our in our 40s, let's say, that while, of course, the Iraq war was decidedly different yeah. than fighting the Soviet Union. I mean, the Bush years. The, the Bush years. Yeah. Well, the Reagan years in the 80s. Yeah. That because those are, those are, that was the end of the Cold War, we understood every international conflict and American intervention through the lens of two things. Defeat the communists. And secondly, American power abroad is good. And so mistakenly, at least speaking for myself, knowing that, of course, Iraq is different, the Soviet Union had collapsed by that point in the Bush years, that we we had the same frame of reference. And President Bush exploited that. Colin Powell exploited that. And even worse than Bush, he tried to explain later that he didn't in order to save his reputation. I find that reprehensible. I think John Bolton should be in prison for, for treason because of what he did to President Trump. And I was a huge Bolton fan. I even thought he should be president of the United States. That's I, I say all of that not to malign those guys personally, but just to speak honestly, that they failed this country and they failed conservatism. And God bless Donald Trump with all of his personality warts for creating a situation where we can have a conversation about it. And I'm smiling as I say this because I really thought for the rest of my life as conservatives, we would not deal openly and honestly with that question of national security, of foreign policy. And I think we get the opportunity to do it. Yeah. It's a very exciting time, um, and I think that uh, there's institutions that are grappling seriously with uh, the moment we find ourselves in, and love to say the word moment every chance we get. Uh, <laughs> I wonder why. Re- registered trademark. Um, <laughs> but, and then there's institutions that not, and, 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 and I think, you know, uh, having seen TPPF over the past couple of years, having lived in Texas, but even now assessing it uh, with even some critical distance, uh, you guys are, are seriously engaging with the time we find ourselves in. And um, I think that has everything to do with your leadership. So thank you for everything you do, Kevin. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks. I, I really appreciate being here. appreciate what the American moment is doing. And I would just advise everyone listening, whatever organization you're part of, beware of inertia. And when you you see that inertia in your organization, it can happen everywhere. It, it can happen at Texas Public Policy. The go fight it. When? Because the moment we're in demands that every organization that is part of this movement is at its optimal level. So thanks for having me. There's no room for complacency. No organization gets any slack. That's exactly right. Thank you, Kevin. You bet. This week, we wanted to highlight a piece on AmCanon that I think dovetails very well with a lot of the things we talked about with Dr. Kevin Roberts, except in some ways in the inverse. Uh, Kevin's an example of what happens when leadership and moral courage are done correctly. However, this piece by Derek Thompson at The Atlantic uh, talks about the flip side of the coin. Its title is, 
elite failure has brought Americans to the edge of an existential crisis. And the subhead is the nuclear family, God, and national pride are holy trinity of American identity. What would happen if a generation gave up on all three? Things would be pretty bad. And that's really the situation we find ourselves in. In this piece, he talks about how the polling on uh, on all of these matters has, has dropped precipitously amongst millennials, amongst Generation Z, and all of the consequences that it has for American society. We talked about the overwhelming materialism that is prevalent in American life with Kevin, and that definitely is part of it. I think in the piece it mentions that uh, young young people, millennials and Gen Z, are more likely to affiliate with brands and companies than they are with church and community, even Democrat and Republican. Uh, and, and I think a big part of the reason that this is the case is because all of the leaders of institutional life, of faith institutions, of political parties, of government, uh, and of our nation, they clowned themselves over the last 40 years. They failed to defend the interests of our country, of our people, uh, and, and of the national interest. And so in some ways, it kind of makes sense. Like, why would you pay attention uh, to these perfidious morons that led the country astray over the last 40 years. But uh, it's also deeply disturbing because without any of the grounding that makes a civilization thrive, we're headed for, for a lot of decline. Yeah, I think that's the interesting thing about this is people wonder why Americans are, are especially young Americans, are so lonely, right? Why they take to, to you know, formerly Tumblr and, and and Twitter and Reddit to talk about how lonely and sad they are. Uh, you really wonder why when you identify with Nike and Fortnite and all of these other things, you know, over a, over a church or a community, uh, specifically on materialism. Uh, in America, we've 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 kind of idolized right making it. Um, Never mind that we don't actually have a definition for what that is, what making it means. It just means, you know, making a lot of money, being successful, um, having people respect you, being well known. Uh, I think as we've seen from the decline of <laughs> the people in charge and, and, and the people who are well known in this country, materialism uh, doesn't bring you any great moral or spiritual health. In fact, it probably makes things worse. Some of the, I think all three of the richest men in the world uh, are either currently divorced or have at one, at one time been divorced. What, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, and Mark Zuckerberg? Or, yes. Sorry, no, sorry, mm -hmm. Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and... Um, and Jeff uh, Bezos. Jeff Bezos, that's right. Yeah. 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 So um, it's it's very clear that like you can be the richest man on earth. You can have all the cool cars that you want, all the big houses that you want. Um, you can be the big man making all the big decisions. Uh, and if you're still focused on the money that you're making and the things that you have to to manage instead of your marriage and your actual contribution to your country, uh, you're going to lose everything that actually matters. Yeah. I mean, the, the Bill Gates thing. I mean, Right now, uh, if you haven't seen it in the news, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates uh, recently announced that they'll be uh, getting a divorce. And it was just the most horrific thing in the world to read when you saw the joint press release, because I think in it they say something like, you know, after after years of partnering together, we've realized we'd be you know better than going to paraphrase, you know, self-actualized if we went our separate ways. And it's just horrifying to me, the idea that you'd spend 30 years in marriage with someone. And then at some point, you'd just be like, well, we're going to go our separate ways. We'd be happier on our own. And it's 
it's not a sign of a healthy civilization that something like this isn't met with like booze and tomatoes instead it's like you know oh you girl go get your coin um you know uh and and you know bill gates is experiencing white boy summer like it's funny the memes are funny but it's also deeply disturbing yeah the only reason (laughs) the memes are funny is because it's like it's funny to make fun of the fact that bill gates is now fat like that like (laughs) haha you know you're 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 fat now i saw someone Um, say that you know oh yeah the elites are totally hiding uh you know healthcare technology from the masses (laughs) you know bill gates looks like it's like i don't know about that you yeah probably do better like living uh a simple uh not poor but like simple life of like whole foods fruit and vegetables than any of the like you know weird poop water that bill gates is drinking (laughs) you can tell he's been uh consuming the soy as it were uh yeah it's it's the thing i think that was that was most depressing for me about and i think you saw something similar with the jeff bezos divorce too was that it's like and the common refrain that you hear and a lot of people get divorced is oh we've grown apart um I think a biblical view of marriage is that that should not be possible. Uh, the 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 point is that you're supposed to, um, and listen, this is something I've contemplated a lot as someone who has been engaged for an entire week. I am very wise on the subject. Uh, Get your marriage advice from Nixle. <laughs> but uh, but but I think that you know love is a is a is a commitment to work together as a team. It's not. Um, you know, hey, we feel this really passionate feeling and it's just like this amazing, beautiful love story. And so we're just going to do it. Um, it's it's and it can be part of that. And you can have a good story that doesn't preclude anything. But um, the way that I view marriage is that it is a commitment to not grow apart, um, to grow together, to make each other better um, and to contribute something better to your society, i.e., children but also being you know involved in the in the community in all in all sorts of ways and um you know the the decadence of our elites who uh, refuse to fulfill any of those responsibilities is is really just endemic of the moral rot that we're experiencing uh as a culture and society in general yeah. we live in a society as they say <laughs> I'm going to do something here and and maybe uh, make Nick a little bit pink around the cheeks. But um, I honestly look up to Nick a lot, um, more than almost any other man my age. Um, (laughs) uh, He is turning a little bit pink. He's always pink. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm always a little pink. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And look, like watching him get engaged has in some ways like been an inspiration to me, like to the extent that and I lead a pretty tame life, but to the extent that I'm still like, you know, screwing around and, and not being serious about about settling down I, I probably should and and again I'm, I'm pretty much vastly more traditional about these things than most people are but still and I think it it you know Kevin uh, being a, a father of four he homeschools all of them uh, I think that there's a very interesting choice that especially a lot of young people have to uh, think about uh, in the coming months and years and decades uh, who are you looking up to as a leader and are they leading a life that seems uh, uh, eudaimonious or sustainable uh, in the long term. Uh, what would happen if you had a country full of leaders that emulated that worldview? And when our country is led by people like Bill Gates and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos who have their marriages collapse uh, 20, 30 years in, is that the role model you should be looking at? Or, or mm-hmm. should you be looking at someone like Nick Solheim who decided 
to uh, get married young. And uh, presumably, I, I, I would be shocked if Evie and Nick uh, did not stay married until the day that both of them die. <laughs> you know, I will say that... Uh, I'm going to make myself a little pink in the face. <laughs> I will say that that when I... Uh, we went, Evie and I went on three dates initially about a year ago. Um, and on our fourth date, I uh, asked her to go steady, as it were. <laughs> and the, uh, the, the, I'll always remember, like, you know, specifically what I said. Uh, I promised that uh, it would never be or would not always be easy. Um, but, it would it would that I would always be committed to her uh, and that it would always be uh, interesting was the was the word um, that I used. And I I think that's what true love is. It's uh, like I said earlier, you know, it's a it's a it's a commitment to support and it's about ultimately caring about things bigger than oneself. Um, you know, marriage is kind of step one and then caring about your church and community, like these things all tie together. They're not um, unique in any way. All that to say, uh, I'm expecting to come to the office tomorrow and Sir Rob's already married and has two kids no, no, in his no, no. homeschooling. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, criticize and replace your perfidious elites. Get married. Have a whole bunch of children. Uh, that's the message of this podcast episode. Uh, that's the message of American Moment in a lot of ways. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Again, we're shocked every week when we find out how many people are listening to this podcast. Please, please, please share it with your friends. Please rate it five stars. Ask a question in your review and we will answer it on the podcast. As long as it's not lewd, we are very open to tough, qu tough questions. So please feel free to ask and uh, we will see you guys next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.